This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows Good evening, friends. We set sail. We leave dry dock and present to you Our program for Sunday, March the 14th. A programming change. Eliza Presley was uh, to join us this evening. The uh, alleged stepsister of the King of Rock and Roll, claiming to have DNA evidence, but further claiming to have DNA evidence that Jesse Garen Presley, a gentleman living under that name to this day, who is very much alive, is in fact Elvis Presley. Eliza uh, was unfortunately called away last minute to be with her uh, daughter who was seriously ill in Texas. Uh, So we send our prayers and our best wishes to Eliza and her daughter and her family, and uh, we expect to have Eliza on this program, God willing, in uh, the next several weeks. She'll also be joined at that time with the, uh, the head of her forensic team who has assembled this startling DNA evidence, which will be presented in court. It will have its day in court. Uh, So her forensic expert uh, will be here as well. All right. No matter, we have a full show for you here tonight, and we're going to dedicate most of it to a very important issue. We talk a lot about uh, UFO disclosure on the program and uh, the reality of uh, the ET presence here on Earth, interacting with human civilization. We're going to examine maybe a smaller slice of that uh, here tonight over the next 90 minutes. And that is UFO encounters at nuclear weapon sites. This has been going on for 60 years. 
you're ha- you, you haven't heard a lot about it uh, because uh, it is also sort of tied up in this uh, the 60-plus year truth embargo. But we will delve into that uh, tonight. And uh, joining me, as always, when we uh, approach these matters is my co-pilot and uh, good friend, Mr. Victor Vigiani, who is the Director of Media Relations for Exopolitics Canada. Hello, Victor. Hello, Richard. Great to be here again. And you're getting ready to set sail uh, after tonight for a, uh, a long That's voyage correct. overseas. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe the next time we'll hook up, you'll be uh, down under in Brisbane, I understand. Just south of Brisbane, yes. Uh, in uh, Brunswick Head is the name of the lo- actual location. Uh, ocean shores. And before that, we're traveling a little bit through Thailand and uh, Vietnam, but eventually making our way down to the Brisbane area for uh, about uh, two and a half months. When you travel around with mm-hmm. your lovely bride, Lori, do do you seek out uh, other uh, UFO researchers, or are you strictly on uh, vacation and you just shut this out entirely? Uh, this is not something that, personally, uh, I'm able to shut down. Uh, the entire year that I was away in Australia in, in 2003, uh, both my wife and I were down there. We did a house exchange. And during that period of time, uh, actually, I got a lot of time to do some very serious research. And it turned out to be very fruitful because I spoke at uh, three different conferences, uh, one in Sydney and uh, one in Adelaide, and then one uh, very large one right in the city of Brisbane. So I met up with a lot of people there who are intensely interested in this, and the Australian uh, UFO community is extremely active uh, to this day, and uh, I congratulate them on all their really great work. So no, I don't. Uh, I don't turn it off. Can't turn it off. Just not possible. <laughs> no, I, I. I wouldn't expect so. Knowing yeah. you as I do, and knowing mm-hmm. uh, obviously how once something this UFO issue takes hold of you, it really does uh, take over your your entire life. And how could it not? Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. All right. Let's um, get to our other guests. Uh, you, uh, Robert Hastings is with us. He's a noted UFO researcher, lecturer, who has interviewed nearly a hundred U.S. Air Force veterans who were involved in nuclear weapons-related UFO incidents. He's interviewed retired military personnel regarding their knowledge of nuclear weapons-related UFO activity and has taken his findings and presented them to uh, colleges and universities nationwide. He's the author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. Robert Hastings, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. And thanks for being here. Also with us uh, tonight is Captain Robert Salas, who graduated from the Air Force Academy and spent seven years in active duty from 1964 to 1971. He's also held positions at Martin Marietta and Rockwell and spent 21 years at the FAA. In the Air Force, he was an air traffic controller and a missile launch officer, as well as an engineer of the Titan III missiles. He testifies about a UFO incident on the morning of March 16, 1967, when 16 nuclear missiles simultaneously became non-operational at two different launch facilities immediately after guards saw UFOs hovering above. The guards could not identify these objects, even though they were only about 30 feet away. The Air Force did an extensive investigation of the incidents and could not find a probable cause. 
At a debriefing about the incident, an officer from the Air Force, of, uh, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations required him to sign a non-disclosure form and told him that he was not to talk about the event to anyone including his family or other military staff. At a time during the Cold War when minor technical anomalies were openly communicated amongst the staff, this incident was not, and to this day, Captain Salas thinks this to be very unusual. He is the co-author, along with James Klotz, of the book Faded Giant. Bob Salas, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Is Bob there? Hello, Bob Salas. Hello, can you hear me? There we are. Have we made contact with Bob Salas? <laughs> welcome. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show, Richard. I appreciate it. All right. And, of course, uh, Victor Vigiani uh, joins us in studio as well. Hi, Victor. Uh, Hi, Bob. Robert uh, Hastings and uh, uh, Bob Salas, the, um, one of the reasons that we're having on you, on, uh, you on the program is that the both of you are preparing for a press conference in uh, Washington, uh, D.C., at the, uh, the press club, the National Press Club, to talk about this very issue. Uh, Robert Hastings, first of all, to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, the genesis of this initiative. Uh, Mr. Salas and I have been uh, professional and personal associates and friends for a decade or more now, and we both feel strongly that uh, people everywhere, not only in the United States but all around the world, need to know, first of all, all about the reality of UFOs, and more in particular, UFO activity at nuclear weapons sites. Uh, as we will be discussing, some very dramatic things have taken place. We, Bob and I, are hoping with this press conference in Washington scheduled for this fall, no exact date yet, we plan to have uh, about a dozen former or retired Air Force personnel discussing incidents that they were directly involved in where UFOs came in and maneuvered around and hovered over nuclear missiles and in some cases, as we're about to hear, uh, interfered with the functioning of those missiles. Obviously, this is quite dramatic. It's uh, earth-shaking information. The Pentagon has successfully kept it from public view for decades. We think it's time that the press around the world get, get the message and start treating this story seriously. So that's what we're hoping to do. Bob Salas, why now? Why this fall? Uh, right now is an excellent time to bring this up. I think um, there, there is very high interest right now in, in the public mind in, in this subject. Uh, I think we, what we want to do is focus on the nuclear weapons um, uh, connection with UFOs. Um, there, there, like Robert said, there's been so much of this activity over the years, uh, starting from the, uh, the 40s. Uh, I, I would like to put a plug-in for our uh, the website, uh, ufohastings.com, where we are requesting donations uh, to, to get this done in the fall. Uh, we're going to try to make this a grassroots effort, uh, so we won't be beholding to any uh, major donors. Uh, we'd, we'd like to get everybody involved in this, because it, it does involve all of us. Really. Uh, UFOHastings.com, that is um, uh, linked up on my website on the homepage at richardserrett.com. If you just right. click on uh, uh, Robert Hastings, it'll take you right to that site. Now, I'm just curious, wh when, you th when you talk about, you know, holding a press conference, my immediate uh, reaction would, well, you get a microphone and you invite the press and you sit down in a room and you answer questions. What, what, uh, where does the, the, uh, the, the fundraising come in? 
Well, uh, the fundraising is required uh, to bring all these witnesses from different parts of the country. Ah, there, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and hotel rooms and, and that sort of thing. We're we're going to uh, keep very close tabs on on uh, what what contributing contributions we receive and also the expenses. So it, it'll be up. To, it, it'll be open for public uh, uh, review and. Uh, and this is a non-for-profit, not-for-profit effort. So any excess funds that we collect will be donated to charity. All right. And this will be full disclosure, no pun intended. <laughs> Robert right. Hastings is the author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. Captain Robert Salas, also with us, former uh, U.S. Air Force, witnessed a uh, or was present during a UFO encounter at a nuclear missile base back in 1967. Victor Vigiani in studio, Director of Media Relations for Exopolitics Canada, uh, back with more on this vital issue, UFOs and nukes. Stay with us. personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Think about the implications. An unidentified flying object breaching U.S. air security hovering above a nuclear weapons installation and dismantling nuclear missiles. This is, has not just happened once over the last 60 years. It's, there have been enough incidents to fill a book. And yet the government, the U.S. government, remains silent about this. All right, um... Victor Vigiani is uh, with us, Director of Media Relations for Exopolitics Canada, and uh, a frequent contributor to the program, obviously, and his study of anomalous aerial phenomena and research and analysis of extraterrestrial issues spans over 30 years. Captain Robert Salas is with us, a former uh, U.S. Air Force, and as I say, uh, or said, witnessed an encounter, or was present during an encounter in 1967, and uh, he, the co-author of Faded Giant with James Klotz and Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. I want to be very clear when we begin this, uh, this whole segment. Um, both of these gentlemen have an incredible background in research, and I've listened to both of them. Um, both actually have been on The Larry King Show, and I've listened to, uh, to Robert Salas, to Bob Salas at the... Uh, at the X conference, and I've also spoken to him directly about it. Um, but I want to make it clear to all journalists that may be listening out there, and any public figures, be they elected or appointed within the realm of government, because I know this this program is reaching a lot of people. And I, I want to make it clear that this information that you're about to hear is probably the most definitive that I have ever run across in my life. And I, I say that um, uh, with all due respect to many other researchers who've done a lot of great work. 
But here we have a situation of two men who've, who've literally, um, you know, almost you know, wear down their fingernails on a daily basis uh, getting involved in this information and at some risk, too, at public risk, not only to their reputations, but uh, in other ways. But you're about to hear information that the United States Air Force not only has covered this up, but they've lied to the people of the United States and beyond. And my opinion on that, and that we can get more from uh, Robert and Bob on this, that they have actually lied to Congress. And that uh, we can get more deeply into that uh, a little bit later. But what I want to do, um, uh, Bob Salas, would you want to just begin by just describing the situation uh, back in 1967 at Malmstrom Air Force Base uh, when you were you know, launch commander, and you got a call from your security guards that there was something outside that just wasn't right. Did just just uh, run that all by us? Okay, real briefly, and I, I want to correct the record. Uh, that my incident occurred on the 24th of March. We have pretty good evidence of that mm-hmm. now, uh, 67. And uh, there was a previous incident very similar on the 16th of March for which we have extensive documentation. Uh, both were very similar in that all... And missiles were disabled. Um, I was um, at. Uh, it was dark outside. Let's say I'm. I'm not sure whether it was early morning or late in the evening. But uh, uh, I get a call from my guards uh, saying there's some strange lights flying up above the facility. That and, and again, I was 60 feet underground uh, in a, a reinforced capsule. Um, that was supposed to be uh, protected from a nuclear blast. But um, uh, the guard says that there are strange lights flying around at uh, making very unusual maneuvers, going at high rates of speed, um, not making any sound, um, flying over the facility. And I didn't quite know what to make of this, so I I kind of disregarded it and, and hung up and went about my business. But five uh, minutes later or so, the guard calls back. This time he's extremely agitated, frightened, screaming into the phone that he's looking out the window and seeing a oval red object uh, pulsating uh, light uh, just hovering above the front gate. This object was about 30, 40 feet in diameter, uh, and it was just hovering there. And he had the guards all out with their, with their weapons drawn and wanted my orders on what to do next. I uh, was kind of flabbergasted, didn't know what to say exactly. I think I said, uh, make sure nothing comes inside the perimeter fence. Uh, <clears throat> and then he hung up. Uh, uh, one of the guards had gotten injured, uh, not not from the UFO. I want to emphasize that it, he uh, was running towards the, the fence, which had barbed wire on it, and I think he cut his hand. But at any rate, I uh, then... Uh, go to my commander, who's in an arrest period, and and, uh, and start to tell him about the phone calls. And then all of a sudden, we're we're getting bells and whistles going off down there that our missiles are shutting down while this object is still up there. And so that's essentially what happened. Um, uh, I called back upstairs because we also had security violations um, on the sites. In other words, we get uh, lights indicating there's. Uh, uh, incursion into the launch facilities where the missiles are actually located. Um, and so I sent guards out there. They also saw UFOs, by the way, while, while they were out there and reported back. And we have uh, uh, supporting witness testimony from my commander, who's still alive, 
uh, again, <clears throat> the same thing happened at Echo Flight. Mine was Oscar Flight. Echo Flight went down on the 16th of March, about a week earlier, and we had the testimony of those two officers. So we've got pretty good witness testimony on this. Bob, let me ask you uh, what, what the protocol would be. Let's say that they were not UFOs, but they were identifiable. Let's say they were MiGs or something like that. What would you normally do in a situation like that? Would you call uh, for um, uh, well, air certainly... support? or? Uh, uh, I would have called in the command post and and reported it and probably would have gotten a, a lot more Air Force personnel out there if we if we knew that we were under some kind of a, a terrorist attack. But if, because you couldn't identify, why would you not still follow that protocol? Uh, if the missiles were, were, were shutting down and you were getting a, an indication that there was a breach, uh, why wouldn't you call the command post? Oh, we did. You did. We certainly did. Okay. We called the command post right away um, and notified them um, of what was going on. And, that, and that's when we heard that the same thing had happened at another site. I see. At first I thought the same thing happened that, that evening, but um, we later found out that it had happened uh, a week earlier. Did you know about that earlier event, Bob? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know about it, and... Um, Basically, I, I, we were told to forget everything we knew the next morning. Uh, my, like Victor reported, that uh, we had to sign non-disclosure statements and uh, told we couldn't talk about it to anybody, including our spouses or any any of the Air Force people around us. All right, Bob Salas, uh, stay put. Uh, Robert Hastings, likewise. Victor Vigiani in studio as we continue to discuss UFO incursions at nuclear weapons sites. Bob Hastings and uh, Robert Hastings and Bob Salas will be uh, holding a press conference in Washington, D.C. later this year. They are looking for your help. It does cost money to, uh, to fly in expert uh, witnesses and so forth that will be present at this press conference. And uh, you can help out by logging on to uh, ufohastings.com. ufohastings.com. And uh, we'll pick it up on the other side. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. I don't think you need to believe in little green men from Mars to appreciate the gravitas of this situation. Whether or not these were UFOs, uh, we had at least two situations where nuclear missiles were deactivated, shut down at uh, two nuclear missile sites in the United States back in 1967, and the government hasn't uh, said boo about these incidents. And there are others, as we'll discover when we uh, discuss this uh, further with Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites. Bob Salas is a uh, former... Uh, a captain in the U.S. Air Force and uh, was present at one of these in incursions back in 1967. Victor Vigiani in studio from ExoPolitics uh, Canada. Uh, Robert, uh, w Robert Hastings, uh, when did you first uh, become familiar with this situation in 1967? I guess I'm asking, I guess, how you hooked up with Bob Salas. 
My father was in the Air Force. He was at Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967, but he was not in missiles. He worked in a building called the SAGE building, which was a computer-assisted uh, radar tracking system uh, for both Canada, the United States, North America in general. And uh, there were, there were uh, trackings of UFOs at that time. I was a junior in high school, 16 going on 17, but three nights a week I worked in the base air traffic control tower as a janitor. Uh, long story short, I made an acquaintance of one of the FAA controllers who, when I was in cleaning this facility one night, actually pointed out they were tracking these five unknown targets. And when I later asked him about it, uh, he was quite, he, he, it was suddenly the, the conversation never happened. And so I got my uh, interest peaked. I told my father about all of this. And sometime later, he did confirm to me in very general terms that they were tracking bona fide UFOs. Not only that, but that they had been sighted near the missile sites east of the base. Now, the location that was reported to my father differs somewhat by many, many miles than the location where Bob Salas of Echo Flight, or excuse me, Oscar Flight was. His group of missiles was uh, further east. In any case, there was widespread UFO activity. So that piqued my interest. And by 1973, um, Ray Fowler, who is a UFO researcher, went public and acknowledged that in the 60s he had worked for, for Sylvania Corporation as a Minuteman uh, program uh, supervisor, and he had heard about missile shutdowns at Malmstrom Air Force Base uh, in that time frame. So I went, wow, I know, that I know about this, I know something was going on, and so that sparked my interest. I began seeking out and attempting to interview uh, former and retired Air Force personnel, uh, not only at Malmstrom, but all over the country uh, during the Cold War era. And what I found out very quickly within just a matter of uh, a couple of years that uh, the type of incident that occurred at Malmstrom was just the tip of the iceberg. This kind of thing has occurred at virtually every missile base, every atomic bomber, uh, nuclear bomber uh, base at weapons storage areas at nuclear missile or excuse me nuclear weapons laboratories like Los Alamos and Sandia Labs uh, there are any number of declassified documents and over 120 actually uh, persons that I've interviewed who are involved in these kinds of incidents so this is very dramatic it's ongoing and uh, I can't get into the specifics right now but uh, Bob knows what I'm about to refer to we've developed a new source who describes UFO activity at uh, a nuclear weapons storage area near Nellis Air Force Base within the last three or four years. So this is ongoing. Well, that's, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, uh, Robert, in terms of the, uh, the recent activity. Um, before we get into anything recent, um, can you just give us an overview of, of the kinds of things when you first started, and you probably hit them in a random way, did you go sequentially year by year, or like how did you hit upon the first couple and then in, and go from there? Did you go back and forth, or how did the, that chronology work itself out? And it, it, it was random. It was catch as catch can. Um, I, of course, uh, because of my father's Air Force career, I had persons available whom I could ask who may or may not know about some of this activity, persons who work with missiles, radar personnel, even military pilots. And um, as often as not, in fact, more often than not, people either claim to know nothing or even laughed at me because, you know, there's lots of skeptics about UFOs. But slowly but surely, uh, in the early 1970s, I began to find persons who 
said, yes, I'm aware of what you're talking about. Here's what happened to me at such and such a base at such and such a time frame. So all I could do was to begin to collect these testimonies and uh, try to make some sense and see if there was any pattern to them. Uh, that was, uh, you know, 27 years ago. And I can tell you, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of thing that Bob was involved in uh, seems to be a subset. In other words, missiles malfunctioning mm-hmm. do not occur on every occasion when UFOs are reported near nuclear missiles. But the number of reports of just UFOs flying around and hovering over nukes, virtually every missile base in the United States uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, have had these kinds of incidents. Hang on, and back up a second. Back, You said virtually every nuclear installation in the United States has had some type of incident like this? Uh, missile bases in particular, but again, based on declassified documents and the testimony of persons I've interviewed, uh, there are Im- incidents involving uh, what are called WSAs, weapons storage areas, where uh, nuclear bombs are, are kept, or missile warheads. Uh, everyone or most of your listeners have probably heard about the Bentwaters or the Rendlesham Force case in England in December of 1980. Uh, the deputy base commander, Charles Halt, uh, took a group of uh, security police out in the woods and UFOs hovered over their head and sent down laser-like beams at their feet and all of that. That's been covered widely in the media over the last 20-some years. What's not widely known is while, while, while all that was going on, uh, Colonel Halt observed at least one of these UFOs uh, hovering above or quite near the weapons storage area on base and sending laser-like beams of light down into the, we- the weapons storage area. So again, you have the nuclear uh, connection with the, one of these very famous UFO incidents. Since the fall of the Iron Curtain, the end of the Cold War, do we have any reports from Russia, the former Soviet Union, of similar incursions at their nuclear facilities? And You're asking me, Robert? Yes. Um, the one, the, the case that's gotten the most attention occurred on October 4th, 1982. Uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, a number of Western researchers and journalists went to uh, then Russia and interviewed former Soviet military personnel regarding UFO activity in that country during the Cold War. George Knapp, uh, journalist from Las Vegas, UFO researcher, uh, interviewed former Soviet personnel about this incident in October. October of 82 in Soviet Ukraine, when for about, I think, a three-hour period, a saucer-shaped object was sighted hovering over a uh, nuclear missile base and nearby town. And at some point during that uh, several-hour period, down in the launch capsule, uh, an unspecified number of Soviet ICBMs uh, were activated uh, and for 15 seconds uh, were preparing to launch. And The officers made uh, abundantly clear to Mr. Knapp that no orders had come from Moscow, no launch codes had been input, no keys had been turned, and yet these missiles were suddenly activated just as a UFO was sighted uh, hovering in the vicinity. Now, I have interviewed a man named David Shore, who was a Minuteman missile launch officer like Mr. Salas, except he was at Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota, uh, in the mid-60s, and at my website, there's uh, an article called Launch in Progress. Uh, if you just Google those three words on my name, you'll find my two-page interview with Mr. Shore, David Shore, who said that 
in the case, as in the case with Mr. Salas, he got reports down in the launch capsule of a UFO moving from missile to missile to missile. Mr. Schur said that as the UFO hovered over a given missile in his flight of 10, suddenly um, they got a, a launch activation, uh, activation sequence and they had to, act, had to actually um, in, uh, implement what's called an inhibit uh, mode or switch to prevent these missiles from theoretically being launched. Now, I'm, I'm confused because, uh, and I don't, I don't know if any of us are equipped to answer this because it's obviously all speculation, but when, when UFOs are uh, deactivating missiles, that makes a certain amount of sense mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, you know, we're, we're able to read into their motivation, uh, uh, they're attempting to avoid some sort of nuclear uh, uh, encounter here on, on, uh, on Earth, but why would they be activating uh, missiles. Uh, well, well, again, my opinion and David Shore's opinion, the launch officer that I just mentioned, uh, he said that a number of what he called spurious indicators occurred. One of them was a launch in progress. His opinion, and I agree with it, is that there was no intentional effort to launch these missiles on the part of whoever was in the UFO more that they were just doing scanning, a scanning process of the missiles and either inadvertently activated the launch sequence or an, an equally plausible theory, or in my opinion, is that both here and in Soviet Ukraine, uh, they were just trying to scare the hell out of the launch officers and in turn the commanders that they would report to and the government officials of those commanders would report to uh, just to you know, send a signal, just a sobering message you know, that nuclear weapons are dangerous. We can shut them down, we can activate them, you know, uh, we basically can, you know, uh, circumvent all of your security measures. But I don't think anyone, neither Bob Salas nor I or anyone I've talked to, thinks that uh, these inadvertent or these, these uh, launch activations were deliberate and designed to, you know, create an actual launch. But, uh, can I add something to that? Sure, Bob, sure, Bob go ahead. Uh, yeah, one of my witnesses, uh, who shall remain nameless right now, uh, claims that he was a targeting officer bringing back one of the Echo Birds back up and, uh, and uh, said he, he was notified by his guard upstairs that there was a, a glowing orange ball up there. He, he went up there and took a look, and sure enough, there was this uh, glowing orange ball uh, just above the site. Yeah, um, Miraculously, just uh, went back down and went back to work trying to bring this missile back up and went through his procedures. He's, his testimony to me is that every time he got to a particular point in the procedure, um, uh, the uh, system would shut down on him. And uh, he could actually feel uh, some sort of energy field uh, around him as he was working down there. Uh, and he, he, he tried this. Uh, you know, a half dozen times, and again, uh, the the missile system would shut down as he got to this particular point in his checklist. Now, his his feeling was that this object knew exactly how our systems worked, and was able to shut them down at will. I just find that absolutely fascinating that uh, that they can be that. Um, I guess manipulative, I suppose, and, and showing that they can have the control. Bob, I want to ask you something. As you're, uh, as a sort of former air traffic controller, and I'm just sort of you know, picturing the situation, the scenario where, you know, you're sitting there and you're in your uh, in the hole, as you call it. And wouldn't radar have picked these things up in some way or another as they approach the site, or they just uh, just appear there? Like, there has to be some sort of forewarning that these things are on the horizon somewhere, coming in from somewhere. Do they not? 
pick them up at some point, or how does that work? Well, these these uh, launch control facilities had had no radar facilities, and, and again, we were about a hundred miles from the base at Oscar, um, so we had no local radar. Mm-hmm. How, however, as uh, Roberts pointed out, the uh, uh, radar at the base um, uh, did pick up these these objects, um, and uh, including on the twenty fourth of uh, March, uh, there were reports of. of of radar hits on them. So I guess what you're saying is that the United States Air Force, uh, the most powerful air force on the planet, is basically um, helpless uh, when these kinds of things, uh, you know, perform whatever maneuvers they have uh, as they approach. In addition to that, these unauthorized intrusions, uh, without transponders, I would imagine, would be, uh, you know, I'd be guessing, is just that uh, they're totally vulnerable. And, I mean, that really surprised me that NORAD would uh, would keep that a secret somehow without at least sharing that with someone in some sort of overt way. Either well, one of you. I, who knows uh, how much things have been improved uh, since then. Of course, we've got uh, satellite systems now that probably know where everything is at any one time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, yeah, at that time, we, we did... We didn't have radar uh, that reached that far out that I know of, unless there was, um, a, you know, a small airport or a radar facility nearby. If this has become so, dare I say, commonplace, they, I'm guessing that the Air Force surely must have developed a new protocol to deal with the situation, or at least uh, a reporting type system. Uh, either Robert or Bob, have you caught wind of of how the Air Force is now handling these incursions of UFOs? Robert, you want to handle it? Uh, Before we go too far afield on the subject of radar, I have an entire chapter in my book uh, in which I present verbatim testimony. I tape all of my sources, and I just simply write down what they tell me. And the FAA sources at Malmstrom in the 60s and 70s that I interviewed said that they were tracking UFOs on multiple occasions, that jets had been launched to attempt intercepts of them on multiple occasions, uh, that when they shared their information with the Air Force controllers at the SAGE building, they basically were uh, asked a series of questions but given no feedback. In other words, the FAA was telling them what they were doing, uh, what they were recording. The Air Force was quite interested in hearing that. They were picking them up, too, as I know from my father, at least on that one occasion. However, the Air Force did not give the FAA any sense of their interest or concern or what have you. Um, so that's the way it was played. And I also interviewed uh, a man named Hank Barlow, who was a missile maintenance tech, who, uh, again, was involved in bringing up some of the missiles that went down at Echo Flight, the one that occurred eight days before Bob's incident. And he told me that there was no mention of radar tracking during the, the Echo incident, but he was told that there was UFO involvement in it. And I asked him if he was surprised or shocked to hear that. And he said no, on several previous occasions over about a two or three year period, they would get calls out in the field saying, uh, heads up, we've got a UFO in the vicinity, and uh, we want you to keep an eye on it. And he said that they had sighted these things out in the field, you know, doing right angle turns in the air at high rates of speed, hovering, and all sorts of, uh, you know, non-conventional aircraft type maneuvers. So he was saying, you know, it was almost like clockwork. We'd get a call from job control saying, you know, we're, we're, we got one of these in the area. So he was of the opinion that they were tracking them on, on radar and uh, notifying the people in the field to look out for them. All right, Robert, uh, hold on. And uh, Bob Salas, likewise. Victor Vigiani in studio as we continue to discuss UFOs and nukes here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. 
want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Coming up a little later in the program, 1230 to be precise, we'll open up the uh, the phone lines and we'll uh, take your spine-tingling tales. And also joining us in studio will be none other than Vlad Eisengrim, the... Um, the man behind the paranormal show. I've been uh, uh, chatting to, to you about that over the last several weeks, and uh, he's joined us by phone to uh, uh, to tell us about the program. And I had the great pleasure of actually uh, watching or attending the paranormal show on Friday down on uh, Pottery Road at the Todd Morden Mills, along with my brother, who was dragged up on stage and witnessed a uh, a table flying across the stage at one point. He'll never be the same. <laughs> uh, anyway, Vlad will uh, will join us in studio at 1230, and uh, we'll kick around some uh, things of the paranormal nature. Right now, we uh, continue to discuss UFOs and nukes. Robert Hastings is with us, UFO researcher, author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites. Bob, Captain Bob Salas, former U.S. Uh, Air Force and uh, air traffic controller. Also, the co-author of Faded Giant, he witnessed or was present at a uh, UFO incursion at a nuclear weapons site in 1967. And uh, Victor Vigiani, in studio, Director of Media Relations for ExoPolitics uh, Canada. Uh, Robert uh, Hastings, the, uh, the most recent incident, I believe you said, was three or four years ago, at least that we've heard about. Um, now, is there some sort of a, a pattern? Was it? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it was uh, perhaps uh, these incursions were were uh, more commonplace during the Cold War, or is that in fact the case? There's really no way to evaluate that because uh, if I had every report that came into the Pentagon, then I could give you an answer. Given that I have to, and other people who do this type of research have to locate and interview credible witnesses, verify their military records, and so on. It basically comes down to a catch-as-catch-can. You know, um, there could have been things going on at Malmstrom last night that I may not know about for another 10 years. Uh, so there's really no way to, to quantify how many, re- how many incidents have occurred during what time frame, at what basis. Uh, I can say, going back to 1945, even before the bombs were dropped on Japan, I've interviewed a former Navy pilot, Bud Clem, who was at, uh, at a, an airfield uh, in Yakima, Washington, near the Hanford plutonium production site, one of the uh, bomb-making material sites, uh, even months before World War, uh, before the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And his squadron chased uh, UFOs on three occasions, objects that hovered right over the, the Hanford plant. Uh, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, very famous UFO researcher back in the 70s, got, I think, about 1,500 pages of FBI documents on UFOs, many of which related to UFO activity at the Los Alamos Labs, which was the birthplace of atomic weapons, at Sandia Labs here in Albuquerque, another atomic weapons site. Uh, I've interviewed uh, former sailors who were on ships down in the South Pacific in the early 50s during the hydrogen bomb blast, the atmospheric tests who have independently reported UFOs to me. Uh, So it's gone on there. I have a source who was tasked with uh, monitoring UFO activity, a former security policeman at the Nevada test site, 
who was reported and uh, tasked with reporting UFO activity during bomb tests during that period. So taken with uh, the other kinds of cases at missile sites and weapons storage areas, this is just across the board, year after year, decade after decade. Would you characterize the, uh, the uh, UFO crash at uh, near Roswell as a UFO incursion at a nuclear weapon site since, of course, there were nukes um, stationed at the airfield in, in near Roswell? Well, others have, of course, including Stan Friedman, pointed out for years now that at the time of the, the Roswell incident, the only atomic bomber base in the entire world was Roswell Army Airfield. And so that's an interesting uh, uh, fact right there. Um, I will just briefly mention also that uh, I've interviewed a, a retired Atomic Energy Commission supervisor named Chester Lytle. Chet Lytle was involved in the Manhattan Project, the first atomic bomb project. He did all sorts of secret work for the Department of Defense, CIA, and other agencies. And Mr. Lytle, back in 1998, told me point blank that in 1952, uh, three rather, while he was in Alaska with the former base commander of Roswell Army Airfield, then General uh, William Blanchard, Blanchard and he were old friends, and Blanchard at one point just told him off the record point blank that there was an ET extraterrestrial spaceship that crashed at Roswell, that four bodies were recovered, and so on. Now, that's all anecdotal evidence, but the source of that information is, is very, very credible. You guys are putting together not only witness testimony, uh, people that were actually there that either saw these things or saw the results of how these incursions do affect the nuclear weapons. You, you know, you've, you've got that testimony. But both of you have somehow uh, included in your work the, the actual documentation. What kind of um, documents are we, are we talking about here? Are they government documents? Are they memos, uh, exchanges between, between uh, launch, launch facilities? What kind of documentation are you referring to? Bob? Uh, yeah, we... Uh started asking uh, through the Freedom of Information Act for the Air Force to, uh, uh, after we found out it was classified, to declassify the echo shutdowns, and then we started getting documents. Uh, some of the documents we got were telexes, uh, messages uh, sent from SAC headquarters. Uh, one of them uh, said uh, this was a very grave situation because they didn't know what caused the shutdown of 10 nuclear missiles within 10 seconds. These were very reliable systems, and uh, and so uh, it, that, that kind of a statement from uh, head of uh, Strategic Air Command is, is pretty telling. Uh, we also got um, uh, record, unit history records. Um, one of them mentioned uh, UFO topic in it. Uh, uh, we we have uh, documentation uh, regarding the type of testing that was done afterwards, trying to figure out what happened here. Uh, I've gotten witness testimony in writing from uh, the investigative team headed by uh, Boeing. Boeing, uh, uh, we've got testimony from other witnesses in writing. So those are the kinds of documents. Uh, that we've got in our case. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we've we've maybe not stumbled onto the reason uh, that uh, the U.S. government continues to maintain this truth embargo, uh, given the fact that we seem to be completely powerless uh, to uh, to do anything about these incursions. They essentially seem to be able to do what they want 
uh, shutting down nuclear missiles, turning them on or activating them. Uh, I'm beginning to maybe understand why uh, the U.S. government is a little hesitant in coming out and announcing that uh, the ET presence here on Earth is real. All right, we'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Robert Hastings, Captain Bob Salas, Victor Vigiani, UFOs and nukes. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The website, your portal to uh, The Conspiracy Show is richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. There you will find information on upcoming shows, a past show audio archive, secret document page, a book club page, and uh, many, many other things. Uh, also, the, uh, the, uh, the website, theconspiracyshow.com, eventually will uh, become sort of the main, uh, the main website, but um, it, we're sort of in transition. Uh, and I should also announce we're getting very, very close to an announcement on the, uh, the television project, also called The Conspiracy Show. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Victor Vigiani in studio from ExoPolitics Canada is uh, with us. Bob Salas, Captain Bob Salas, former U.S. Air Force and Air Controller, and uh, the, the uh, co-author of Faded Giant on the phone, as well as Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Na- Nukes, UFOs and Nukes, and the website is ufohastings.com. Bob, for you personally, what was uh, the price of coming forward? I know that uh, you had to sign non-disclosure, etc., but obviously you've, uh, at, at some point you made the decision that you were going to come, uh, come forward. Has there been a, a personal, professional cost for you in doing so? Uh, well, similar to Victor, uh, it's become an eternal project for me. <laughs> I can't seem to get away from uh, this. Uh, the reason I'm doing it is I uh, feel responsible for talking publicly about it because, uh, well, I'm, I was a witness and it happened. Uh, so I feel the uh, public has a right to know. Uh, as far as, um, uh, you know, whether or not there were any repercussions in my uh, professional life uh, I, I can't say that there were I, I've I've spoken with uh, you know I was a math teacher for about nine years and I, I tell all my classes about the, the my incident and uh, never had any repercussions from that uh, and so I'm never never had any threats if that's uh, if that's a question um, I suppose so, what about you Robert Hastings in the, in the many people that you have uh, interviewed, uh, has, has there been fear, trepidation, reluctance uh, to speak about this uh, on the part of uh, uh, military or uh, or otherwise? There's a whole range of responses. Uh, you know, when I interview a witness, I record what they say. I also get their service records to verify their uh, their presence in these squadrons at these bases. So I vet my witnesses very carefully. Uh, some of them are eager. Some say, I've been waiting 20 years, 40 years, whatever, to tell someone about this. Thank you for treating me, you know, seriously. Uh, others say, you know, I mentioned this to my wife. She laughed at me, and I haven't talked to anybody about it since, or things to that effect. I get people, however, that are reluctant to 
uh, go on Larry King, for example, David Shore, who talked about his missiles being activated. He uh, graciously allowed me to record him and use his interview in the book. However, he declined to appear with Bob and I on Larry King because he felt that the FBI or somebody was going to come knocking on his door. Uh, what I mentioned to him and all of my witnesses is that no one, not one of the 120 ex-military guys that I've interviewed over 30-some years has ever been hassled. Uh, they've never been leaned on. Uh, Chet Lytle, the, the former Atomic Energy Commission guy, on the other hand, was paid a visit after he talked to me and said that he was warned not to discuss uh, what he had told me about Roswell and other things. But uh, that was a special case, a unique case as far as I know. Uh, no one's retirement pay has been docked or anything like that. Yeah, I, th I think one of the most uh, telling stories, or at least statements, that that, um, that Bob Salas that you made is in your article back to Montana. You you actually said, "I, without reservation, accuse the U.S. Department of Air F um, of the Air Force of a blatant, pervasive, and continuing cover-up of the facts, deception, distortion, and lying to the public about the reality of the UFO phenomenon." That's a pretty strong statement, Bob. Absolutely, I believe every word of it. Uh, uh, Air Force, uh, uh, like I made, uh, like I made the try to make the point in that report that I wrote, um, uh, did a whitewash with the Conant Committee. It was uh, it was strictly a, a cover-up operation and strictly intended uh, to keep uh, to allow the Air Force to avoid uh, even considering any more UFO reports, so they wouldn't have to answer to the public. Uh, there, there are so many witnesses that can testify to the reality of this uh, phenomenon, and uh, uh, by their silence and then through, uh, you know, but the fact that we've challenged, and I still challenge the Air Force to uh, uh, basically come after me for uh, uh, violating my oath, uh, which I, which I signed, uh, because I don't think they'll do that because they don't want the truth to come out. At this so, point, uh, I, th I think they're, they're still confident that public incredulity uh, is the only censure, I guess, they feel they need at this point. Is that a fair assessment, either Robert or Bob? Uh, I think that's correct. I think uh, if you look at public opinion polls, uh, you know, one, I don't know about in Canada, but one out of two Americans think that UFOs are nonsense. And so as long as you've got that kind of number, uh, you, there's really, a, a, you know, a resistance on the part of people to accept anything that Bob or I or anyone else would say about this, even though you have over a hundred witnesses talking about it, some of them retired colonels, and you've got thousands of documents talking about UFO activity at, at missile sites and uh, military sites in general. You know, some people are just not going to buy one word of this until they see one of these things land in their backyard and kick dust up on their shoes. So, you know, the Pentagon has this built-in buffer, this self-censorship, uh, because people just aren't will, will, willing to deal with the facts. Well, one and two is actually, when you think about it, 50% of Americans feel that UFOs are, are real, but uh, maybe the more damning or, or difficult or obstacle would be that maybe eight out of ten assignment editors or uh, uh, newspaper editors uh, think that UFOs are nonsense, and that's maybe the, the, the big obstacle here. Absolutely. Which brings us around to the, uh, the upcoming press conference. How many witnesses... Uh, are, are you bringing in and, and give us a uh, maybe a, a thumbnail sketch of some of the the, the main the main participants? Bob. Uh, well, we've kind of come up with a round figure of about a dozen, if we can collect that many. Um, 
We, we've made a list. Uh, we're not at liberty to reveal that right now because we're still vetting the, the witness list, but we're going to try to get a cross-section. Um, like Robert said, this has been going on for decades, and so we're going to get a try, trying to get a cross-section of people. But the, we're, we're going to require all the witnesses to um, uh, have signed statements uh, about their incidents, and hopefully uh, we'll have... Uh, backup witnesses that will, will back up their stories, that sort of thing. Uh, we're going to try to do the most professional job we can uh, for for the media so that they will understand that uh, uh, there's there's a trail, a very strong trail of believability uh, through, for, throughout and for all these witnesses. All right, we'll uh, get into more of the uh, details of this upcoming press conference to be held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., a panel of uh, witnesses will uh, come before, hopefully, the national uh, press in the United States to discuss this vital issue of UFO incursions at nuclear weapon sites. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Next week on the program, that's Sunday, March 21st, the 9-11 Whistleblowers. I'll speak with James Corbett of The Corbett Report about his documentary examining key government and corporate 9-11 whistleblowers. It's often a, a common refrain uh, among 9-11 conspiracy debunkers that uh, 9-11 couldn't have been an inside job because such an operation would have required countless conspirators and it, it wouldn't be possible for all of them to remain silent. And so according to this logic, uh, since there are no 9-11 whistleblowers, then 9-11 was not an inside job. Well, there are 9-11 whistleblowers and uh, James Corbett will be along to tell us about... Uh, uh, some of those, and some of them are, in fact, key government and uh, uh, corporate individuals. That's next week, starting at 11 o'clock on The Conspiracy Show. All right, we uh, continue to press forward with another vital issue, and uh, one of uh, my guests is, in fact, a whistleblower. He is uh, Captain Bob Salas, who back in uh, March of 1967 was present at a nuclear missile base when a UFO incursion deactivated the missiles on site. And this, we are learning from uh, 
Robert Hastings, in his book, UFOs and Nukes, is almost commonplace. It's almost the dirty little secret, the elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. Virtually every nuclear weapons site in the United States has had a UFO incursion where missiles have either been deactivated or activated. And the same goes for the former Soviet Union. These two gentlemen are holding a press conference in Washington later on, uh, I believe in the fall of this year, to discuss this issue and hopefully uh, gain the attention of the national media. Two questions. Well, actually, it's uh, one, uh, two points in one question, and both of you can comment on this. Uh, earlier, Richard talked about uh, sort of the incredulity factor about the, the United States government or Pentagon or whoever those authorities might be. They sort of have this insulation around them of incredulity that no matter what information comes out, the public is, isn't going to buy it. Um, number one, what kind of work are you doing with the media to kind of prime them that there's going to be this kind of event uh, coming up? And, and the B part to that question, I'll throw it out to both of you, is is there some sort of uh, trump card that you have to deal with this this insulation of incredulity that's developed over the last 60 years about the ridicule? Um, how are you going to handle that? Do you, have, do you have something like a big trump piece of information that you're going to lay down there that's really going to convince everyone? Bobby, you want to go with that uh, I wish I did have a trump card. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's a, we're going to rely on the preponderance of evidence. Okay. Uh, uh, like I said, um, we're going to have some very credible witnesses, um, very respected, very credible people. Uh, we're going to have our fair share of full colonels, full bird colonels, and, uh, but not, not that rank is so important. It's just that um, the media likes that sort of thing. Uh, but we're going to do our best to, to uh, like what we're doing tonight. Uh, we're going to we're going to go on uh, as many radio programs as we can, TV programs, and uh, and publicize this. I think I think the public's ready to hear this, and I think the public's ready to to get behind us and uh, make a make make the push that's needed to try to get government to open up. And do, what 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 sort of uh attendance by the Washington Press Corps, do you expect? Is this a situation where if it's a slow news day, they'll show up? If it's, if it's, if it's, if it's not a slow news day, uh, you may be shut out? Uh, I think, you know, it's, all we can do is present our case and invite people who uh, should have an open mind about this. Beyond that, their, their response is their response. We have no control over their biases and prejudices and inability to accept this as a serious story. I'm optimistic. Uh, more importantly than the national press, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, if they attend, great. But if we get Internet coverage, if we get coverage of large uh, newspapers and small who hear about this and pick up the story uh, via the wire services around the world, then that is an excellent way to disseminate information on a more grassroots level than uh, relying on the elite media in any given country. Uh, so that's, that's my hope, uh, that, that that's the way this will be disseminated primarily. How do you hope to, um, to politicize this? Uh, I know I've been involved in this, this situation 
you know, for 30 years now, all this whole scenario. And my feeling is that in order for it to, to really make an, uh, an impact, um, y- you have to politicize it at some level. Uh, by politicize, I mean uh, bring this forward so that the elected officials who really, by, you know, you know they, they really don't have any idea what's going on. I guess that's what I'm saying. Most political figures who are elected sitting in Congress, whatever, really don't know about this. Are you going to play that audience in some way to let them know that you've got some information about the people they work for and with uh, might be trying to pull the wool over their eyes? Well, uh, can I speak to that just for a minute? I I was in the first uh, disclosure conference in 2001, as you know, um, and we did go around and talk to uh, politicians. I can tell you that those people that we did talk to, those uh, congressmen, uh, were very interested in this topic. And now, uh, what what it would take to get them to open it up to a congressional hearing or something like that is, yeah, your guess is as good as mine. But we are going to make our witnesses available for, uh, uh, you know, speaking with uh, Congress uh, if, if they so choose. But. Primarily, I, I think our main objective is to get as much publicity as we can uh, from from this conference. Robert? You, okay, Robert, go uh, ahead. Yes, I, I'm. You know, Bob, Bob, and I think uh, Bob and I, I think differ somewhat on this. Uh, I'm pessimistic about political action uh, regarding the subject of UFOs. It's, if one looks at the history of attempts at congressional hearings they've been bottled up one way or the other usually because of behind the scene pressure by various liaison personnel from the pentagon uh, i don't see any reason why the situation is any different than it was in decades past so what i am hoping for and what i've hoped to do in my twenty nine years on the lecture circuit is create a revolution from below you know one listener at a time one town at a time one radio program at a time where as many people as possible can be made acquainted with the the information that bob and i are trying to disseminate they can evaluate it draw their own conclusions about it i'm confident that most people who have an open mind about this subject will be amazed if not dumbfounded by what we've uncovered and the witnesses that we will be presenting so if you can gain uh, at a grassroots level not only in the united states but around the world enough people who know that this is real uh... then just from an educational standpoint um, you know, people being aware of the facts, even though their government and their churches and their, you know, whatever social organizations that resist all of this change, uh, even though they're not going to cooperate, people will already be in the know and know that it is an unspoken open secret. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the other part of the uh, the whole issue is if you're going to look at um, reporters and speak to them uh, before the press conference, sending out message uh, messages to them. Uh, maybe we can pick this up on the other side. Yes. Yeah. Just what would you say to reporters right now who are listening? People in the in the journalism field who are sitting there listening in their cars or in their living rooms or on their their pod, uh, you know, their whatever they listen iPods, to. Yes. iPods. iPods. Yeah. Uh, what would you say to them to say, listen, this stuff is hot, hotter than you'd ever want to believe? Maybe we picked it up on the other we side. Will. We'll do just that. Victor Vigiani in studio, Exopolitics Canada is with us on the line, Robert. Salas, Captain Robert Salas, former U.S. Air Force Air Controller, and Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes. Stay with us.
curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. We're uh, banged over the head uh, constantly in the media about the uh, the terrorist threat, uh, but perhaps the uh, the greatest national security issue facing North America, maybe the world, uh, is is not a terrorist uh, threat. It is uh, UFO incursions at nuclear weapons sites. This is uh, what we're learning tonight on the program. Robert Hastings is with us, the author of UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary UFO Encounters at Nuclear Weapon Sites, and uh, Captain Bob Salas, former U.S. Air Force and air traffic controller who witnessed or was present in 1967 at a, a nuclear weapon site when a, um, a UFO dismantled or deactivated uh, a number of missiles. Victor Vigiani in studio from ExoPolitics Canada. And uh, before the break, Victor, you had a very uh, a poignant question. Uh, and that was, if I'm remembering, was uh, uh, a message that Robert and Bob might have to journalists who would be listening tonight uh, in anticipation of this, uh, this press conference coming up later this year. Did you want to uh, add to that? Just uh, basically, uh, my imaginings of all of that, gentlemen, would be you know, people sitting by the radio uh, who have the, the power of the pen uh, at their disposal. And if you could sit with them for a few minutes and they had a, even an, a semi-open mind, uh, what would you say to them uh, to, to convince them? Listen, uh, could I this, take that first? Sure, go right ahead, Bob. Okay. What I'd say to them is if, if they were to follow up on the, on the information that we have, uh, just in my case alone, uh, or any of the witnesses that we're going to have in September, uh, they would follow the lead that goes to excessive, excessive secrecy in our government and other governments of the world. And the fact that there's a cabal of people in government and out of government that are closely um, holding the details of the of the UFO phenomena. In other words, all the results of you know crashed craft, uh, extraterrestrial bodies, what what have you. Uh, all this information is something the public needs to know. Uh, it, 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 it it's mind-boggling that um, the government has has kept this information from the public, and there's no reason for it. There's no national security reason to keep this from the public. I understand that uh, our government can't do much about it, but they, they should at least inform the public so that the public can make decisions about it. So to me, I, I can't imagine a more important story that they could write about. Speaking uh, for myself, I, I would simply I agree, uh, say that I agree with most of what Bob said. Uh, I would point out to the media who are interested in this press conference that during the Cold War era, 
the U.S. government entrusted uh, and vetted quite carefully a certain number of people to either operate or guard nuclear weapons. Quite clearly, this is a unique set of individuals. Well, over 120 of these individuals have told me that UFOs have uh, visited nuclear missile sites and bomb storage depots and so forth on, a, on an ongoing basis. So you have people who are quite clearly uh, intelligent, uh, not crazy, uh, do not have problems that uh, would preclude them from working with nuclear weapons. And now, years later, those very same people trusted by our government to uh, either operate or guard weapons of mass destruction are now talking about UFOs shutting down these missiles and so on. That, that in itself is a story. Um, you know, as far as the nas national security aspects of this, I think from the Pentagon's point of view, and, and the, I agree with Bob that this story needs to be told. I've been doing that from the, the college lecture circuit for 30 years. People deserve, in, in a democracy, uh, to know the facts. Uh, this is quite clearly a world-shaking, paradigm-changing situation. My opinion is that no government on Earth has a right to keep uh, human beings in the dark about all of this any longer. But from the Pentagon's point of view, I can see how they view this as national security. Um, a, a former disaffected CIA employee named Victor Marchetti in the mid-1970s wrote an expose on CIA abuses of American law and just general morality. Uh, and he later, uh, very famous, the book was called The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. Anyway, Victor Marchetti in May of 1979 wrote a magazine article about how the CIA views UFOs and he said among other things look even if there's no hostile intent on the part of whoever is flying these craft uh, no government on earth is going to break this story because they have the status quo uh, uh, they want the status quo to be maintained they're in power they want to stay in power they do not want to rock the boat they do not want to announce something as earth-shaking as alien visitation because there could be religious upheaval economic upheaval uh, after 9-11, the stock markets crashed for several days. Suppose the president or world leaders say, hey, aliens are here. The whole economic system could collapse, at least temporarily, if people pull their money out of stock markets and banks and bury it in the backyard until they see what was going to happen. So there's any number of re repercussions, Marchetti was pointing out, that even if there's no hostile intent toward humans, uh, no government on Earth is going to take the bull by the horns and say, yeah, this is real. Our... Uh any uh, members of the uh, uh, Pentagon, Air Force, expected to attend the press conference? We'll see. <laughs> have they been invited? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't think Bob and I have a problem with that, certainly. It's, it's obviously going to be primarily for persons with legitimate, bona fide press credentials. But again, by virtue of feeds, if we can get an Internet feed and so on, there any number of people around the world can tune in and watch the proceedings. Do you think they're worried that you're holding this press conference? I'm sure there are a certain number of people who are not thrilled by what we're doing. Uh, how, how, to what degree they view Bob and I as a threat is, is an open question. Yeah, I, I often wonder that because if if you've got that sort of built-in ridicule uh, as as sort of the government's trump card, the fact that you're going uh, in Washington D.C. in front of the media and expose this kind of thing, all you're going to need really and is is, is one one good reporter to come forward and say, "Listen, I'm going to follow the story," and all of a sudden you've got the makings of a cosmic Watergate, as uh, as Stanton Friedman says. So that uh, that's 
the seeking out of that one reporter, uh, the, the sort of the, the the one pearl in the in the oyster after you've shucked a thousand, uh, that could have a, a, a tipping effect on, on the balance of, of this whole government secrecy because you're going to be unloading that whole secrecy uh, monument uh, onto the onto the public shoulders of, of the people who have a conscience. And let's hope that there are some reporters out there that do have a conscience. Say, listen, enough is enough. Uh, what are your feelings about you know looking for that one? that one reporter that just might be there. I, you know, speaking for myself, I think that's out of our hands. All Bob and I can do is present our case with the best available evidence and witnesses. And, you know, if, if someone wants to uh, pretend they're a journalist but ignore one of the biggest stories of all time, that's not pr- my problem and nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm. Let's hope again after, you know, many, many decades of people ignoring this for one reason or another that there is one brave reporter uh, you know, in the case of the famous Watergate break-in, you had two reporters from the Washington Post, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who did buck the system. They did, you know, uh, endure the ridicule of their peers and uh, their employers and push ahead and push ahead. And they were the ones that pried open the door, door that ultimately ended in President Nixon resigning. So I, I hope there is one or a handful of people out there who are willing to take this on. This is, you know... I mean, from a purely selfish standpoint, if they just listen to what we have and go with the story, this is conceivably Pulitzer Prize-winning material if they want to look at it like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you've got to, you know, Bob and I have endured a fair amount of, you know, uh, ridicule and abuse. Uh, We feel our mission is important enough that we just, we realize that comes with the territory and we keep on moving ahead. so if someone's going to undertake this story from a journalistic standpoint, they've got, they're going to have to have a strong backbone. Um, but the outcome is is something that will be historic in nature, no, no doubt about it. Let me ask you again in the time that remains uh, uh, to speculate a little bit here. But knowing what you know now, both of you gentlemen, in the event that North Korea uh, were to launch or attempt to launch a nuclear missile, or Iran for that matter, what do you think is going to happen? Bob? Uh, you mean as far as uh, UFOs uh, interceding? Correct. <laughs> uh, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I've, I've talked to people who think that uh, uh, these, uh, we'll call them ETs for want of a better word, uh, will not allow a nuclear war to happen because not only would it uh, destroy us, but it would affect them in some way but uh, this is all speculation I I hope uh, they would intercede in a nuclear war because uh, that would be the end of us but uh, I don't know Robert (laughs) Uh, Bob and I have information uh, without getting into it in detail about UFO activity at French nuclear missile sites which have now been dismantled but apparently there were incidents similar to those at SAC bases uh, American missile bases and in the Soviet Union uh, have at least gone on in France so it's not exclusive to the superpowers by any means and I suspect that any country that has nuclear weapons they are indeed being monitored by whoever is aboard the UFOs Uh, whether or not you know as some have speculated, uh, nuclear war in general would be prevented by UFO incursions or, or um, interference. Who knows? No one knows, I don't think. Earlier in the broadcast, uh, I think it was you, uh, Robert, uh, who alluded to the fact that you have some pretty um, big information to, to, uh, to release. Uh, was, was it about the, uh, the most recent um, nuclear incident, or are you willing, are you able to talk about that briefly? Well, I, 
I've developed a source uh, very recently who was a security policeman at this, uh, the largest above ground nuclear weapons storage depot called Area 2, north of uh, or near Anellis Air Force Base. Still uh, have that gentleman's service records. Uh, in my view, he's a credible witness, and we are developing corroborating witnesses, but I don't really care to say much more about Good, it okay. except that. Uh, the type of incidents involving uh, UFO incursions at other weapons storage areas, uh, like the one in in Bentwaters uh, that Colonel Halt has talked about, mm. uh, that kind of thing is occurring in the very recent past, apparently. Well, I want to wish you all the best of luck, uh, and I'll be covering this for sure in, in the best ways that I can, and I hope we can follow up on this a little bit later on. Robert Hastings and uh, Captain Bob Salas, uh, thank you, and uh, uh, I also wish you uh, good luck with this press conference. We'll uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll uh, talk again on the air before, and uh, certainly in the immediate afterwards, and and, and see what kind of uh, uh, press that this can generate. Uh, one can only hope. I mean, it's it's a tough nut to crack, to be sure. Um, but as we've discussed many times in this program, uh, disclosure as a whole, is already here uh, for us if we wanted. We don't need to wait uh, for, uh, uh, you know, official uh, government, uh, official go- a government response or an admittance. It's, it's here, it's now, and we know these things are going on, and, and it's up to us, I guess, what we choose to do with this information. Okay, can I mention the website one more time? Yes, for please. donations, it's uh, ufohastings.com. Thank you. All right, Robert, thank you. Thank you, my pleasure. Victor Vigiani, always a pleasure, and uh, happy travels to you, my friend. We'll, I guess, touch base when you land in Brisbane. That's right. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch with you and see what's happening on the other side of the planet. All right. Thank you. All right. When we come back, the one, the only, Vlad Eisengrim will darken this studio with a very interesting artifact, I'm told. Don't go away. It's clear we're dealing with the cosmic water gate. Essentially everything that you would want to know has been covered up. Out in the universe, they were horrified. They said, oh my God, the kids have found the matches. Now, remember, all this stuff is flying at several thousand miles an hour. So this thing fires a beam of light at the warhead, hits it, fires another beam of light, and then flies out the way it came in. And the warhead tumbles out of the outer space. Now, when the lights came on, Major Mansman turned around and looked at me and said, were you guys screwing around up there? And I said, no, sir. And he said, what was that? And I said, it looks to me like we got a UFO. As far as you're concerned, this didn't happen. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Friday night, my, it was a dark and stormy Friday night, I should mention. Uh, my brother and I attended 
a very interesting show. It was like stepping back in time into uh, under the big tent during the Victorian uh, era uh, and watched quite a, a remarkable show, the paranormal show. And uh, the, uh, the creator of the paranormal show is uh, in studio with me. And he has with him a very bizarre, very old uh, artifact he's going to tell us about. Um, but before we do that, and before I uh, welcome Vlad Eisengrim to the program officially, uh, let me also uh, let you know that you can uh, call in during the next half hour. If you've got a spine-tingling tale, we'll, um, we'll open the lines up and discuss uh, your encounters, your true, quote-unquote, encounters with uh, the paranormal. Uh, whether you've had a, uh, an encounter with a ghost uh, or uh, some other entity, uh, supernatural encounters, or just something that you can't explain. We'd uh, love to hear from you at 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740 and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota, one 866 1-866-744-740. Your spine-tingling tales for the uh, the last half hour of the program. That being said, uh, again, a pleasure to uh, welcome Vlad Eisengrim from the Paranormal Show. Hey, how are you doing, Vlad? Good. Good to be back. I should, uh, you know, it's funny. I've only ever we, the, the the song that came back uh, into uh, from the break was uh, is by the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, they only come out at or we only come out at night. I've only seen you at night. I've never actually seen. Do you actually walk around in the daylight? Are you able to walk around in the daylight? No, I've got a basement apartment. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not surprised. Great show, uh, Friday night. <laughs> Thank Great you. Great show uh, at the um, the paper mill, the old paper mill on uh, Pottery Road, Todd Morden Mills. Yes. Now, this place is haunted, and you only do the show at haunted locations. I source out sites all over Canada that have hauntings, and hopefully hauntings that are not just normal, but actually poltergeist activity and even demonic possession inside the actual buildings themselves. Now, the the, uh, the ghosts that uh, inhabit the, the old paper mill, and this is an old... An old uh, uh, mill that has been converted into a theater. It's owned by the city of Toronto, I believe. Yes. And uh, who being, are these ghosts? Well, the the uh, the ghosts. There's there's uh, about three or four of them actually, and uh, one of them is the uh, mother of uh, the two sons that opened Todd Morton Mills. But the other ones are actual mill workers that had died uh, during their job. Um, it's rather uh, it's rather disheartening some of the things that had happened to them. Well, uh, you can imagine at a uh, a mill of any sort, there yes. would be some uh, potentially some horrific accidents. Are these uh, now? I, I mentioned earlier in the show that my brother got um, uh, asked to volunteer. He went up on the stage, and yes. uh, uh, I don't think he's actually ever going to be the same. He took part in a uh, an ex- in an experiment uh, where. He was asked to put his hands on a table together with another volunteer, and you put your hands on the table. You, you sort of overlapped your hands, and this table literally started flying around the stage. Not up in the air so much, but it, it was moving around all over the stage. Oh, yes. These that are was the, during our seance. Yes. So the idea here is that these uh, spirit entities were actually 
taking part in the show, basically, at this point. They are the stars of the show. But again, my theories on what the uh, spirits are as compared to what the 19th century uh, spiritualists thought are completely different. Well, that's why it is a throwback to the Victorian era because at that time the spiritualist movement was huge. Queen Victoria, Massive. Queen Victoria was into the spiritualist movement secretly because she was also head of the Anglican, the, uh, the the Church of England. So that was very controversial. But uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, regularly held seances in the White House. A lot of people don't know that. So if, if people are interested in, I mean, it's very historical what you do. You 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 uh, you hold true. I mean, it's not a lot of. Uh, you know, if the people are going to, your, to the paranormal show expecting Penn and Teller, that's not what it's about. I no. mean, it's a very purist um, re- reproduction of, of, of an authentic... 19th century styled uh, spiritualism show. All right. Yeah, 90 minutes of nonstop supernatural entertainment on stage. And uh, again, the, uh, the dates, uh, you still have some dates at the paper mill, which is 67 Pottery Road here in Toronto. Yes, and those dates are this upcoming Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That's the 18th, 19th, and 20th of March. Now, the doors open at 8, and it's rush seating, so it's good to get to the box office at 8 o'clock or, you know, just after that if you want to get a good seat. Uh, tickets are $30, and the Supernatural Extravaganza starts at 9. And the website is theparanormalshow.net. Theparanormalshow.net. All right. Uh, before we get to some phone calls, and we're looking for your uh, spine-tingling tales, if you've had an encounter with the paranormal... We are talking about the paranormal show. Then again, I'd love to hear from you at 416-360-0740 and uh, 1-866-744-740. 866-744-740. That's toll-free from just about anywhere. What have you got uh, uh, with you tonight, uh, Vlad? Well, I've brought with me a rather unusual object from the past, but to lead into it, I have with me some Zenner cards. Now, these were created by Joseph Rhine, and they're used in the Rhine Institute to actually test ESP, extrasensory perception. We're going to use them rather differently. Now, the way these things work is they're basically cards that are cards that have, well, little tiny symbols on them. There's the circle, there's the cross, three wavy lines, a square, and the star. Now these work out to numbers also. The circle, of course, is one continuous line, making it one. The cross would be, of course, two lines. Three wavy lines, simple, that makes three. The square, four, and there's five points to a star. These are the things you need to know. Now I'm going to have you shuffle those up. Just What he is doing right now, because you can't see, is he's got the five symboled cards in his hand. And I've asked him to now shuffle them out of order, because they were all in order. One, two, three, four, five. Once you have done so, Richard, I want you to choose one of the cards and place it face down here on the table. All right? All right, I've done that. Very good. Now, you can hold on to the rest of the cards. I don't need to see any of these cards because I'm not the one that's going to be doing any of this. I have brought with me something rather special. Back in the late 19th century, Anna Eva Fay was one of the most important, influential spiritualists of her time. But after about 30 years of doing her work, she decided to come clean because she became a friend of Harry Houdini's. What do you mean by come clean? Well, she was actually um, doing a bit of trickery in her work. She wasn't doing the real thing. But she had a son, and her son married a lady who took on the name Eva Faye. Now... There was a large 
kind of like internal family war because Eva Faye ended up almost copying her act. But she did one thing that is purportedly very real, and that is she brought into the act a thing called the spirit hand. I just happened to have purchased, finally, the original spirit hand that Eva Faye used. And the neat thing about this hand is it is purported to actually embody the actual spirit no matter where it goes. So that I can take it from, like, the house and still do it while I'm here. And we can contact the spirit. But you see, what I'm thinking is really happening. Right. And this is, this is now talking in the 21st century, is we're not contacting a spirit at all. I believe in quantum theory. And I believe that we're actually maybe tapping into some sentient energy that's playing with us. And hopefully that's what we're going to do tonight. Sentient energy. Yes. Like a poltergeist. Absolutely. So that could be the energy of someone who's still alive. Yes. In other words. Absolutely. Okay. So let me just describe uh, this. Well, you describe what it is, this, this spirit hand belong, that belonged to Eva Faye. Uh, how, what does it look like? Tell people. Well, it's a, uh, it's a very old wooden hand that's on a planchet. Now, as you can see, um, Richard's here right now. I'm taking the hand off the planchet, and it's, it's not attached to anything. And the planchet itself has two little um, pieces of wood sticking up from it that create a rocker area. Now, I'm going to make it tap so you can hear it. Those are the now fingers that, that, touching I'm just, the planchet. I'm actually just making it tap by moving the uh, table back and forth. Now this, if we keep it level, would have to do it all by itself. Now, the way this would normally work is uh, Eva Faye would have the uh, other person that she had brought out from the audience to hold one side of the planchet while she held the other, creating a triangular link between the two of them. All right. Now, before I go any further, though, I have in my pocket a prediction. I'm going to place it right here. It's in an envelope. It's in an envelope, and this is actually something I'm going to reveal in just a few moments. Now, Richard, we are going to try and contact whatever entity is embodying this spirit board, as it were. What I want you to do is just take your fingers and hold on to uh, bo both ends perfect, just like right here and here is good. Okay. And try and keep it as level as possible, all right? All right. Now, I'm going to ask the spirit energy to try and tell us which symbol you had chosen. Now, I haven't seen the symbol. You can verify this. Correct. You have not. Yes, I have not. It's sitting uh, face down in front of you. Yes. And now I'm going to ask this energy to try and tell us, through tapping, what the actual symbol was. And I'm going to do this now. If there is spirit energy in this room right now, if this spirit energy is with the board, I ask you to try and tell us which symbol Richard has chosen. It did Th move. That's 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 <laughs> two taps. Did, now were, is is were they is, able to hear that, uh, Dan? Is, you think is, is over that, the microphone? Okay. Is that two taps correct? Is that what you're trying to tell us? There's two taps, meaning maybe it's the cross. Is this correct? Amazing. This is kind of creepy. Yeah, that. <laughs> you, can, you can hold on to that. You can take a look at this. There's nothing. There's nothing attached to this at all. That it's hand just a, was moving all on its own, ladies and gentlemen. That wooden hand. 
Uh, now, and it tapped twice. It, it tapped twice. Now, Richard, I have not looked at the card that you have chosen, and I'm about to turn it over myself. Let, let's see if this spirit energy is as close as I'm hoping it is. There you go. It's the uh, it's the cross, which is uh, equivalent to the number two, as you indicated. It is. <laughs> now, the weird thing is, Richard, is I had mentioned that I had also had a prediction yes. earlier today because I knew I was going to be coming here. I had a strong feeling about maybe what was going to take place later on with what you chose. Let's see if my prediction is correct. There it is. Vlad, you uh, continue to astound and perplex and befuddle me. Uh, would you mind just moving the, the spirit hand away? <laughs> it's that close is to Richard. I'm going to move actually. that out of your way. I'm sorry about that. There we wow. Go. All right. Vlad Eisengrim, The Paranormal Show, now appearing at the uh, Todd Morton Mills, 67 Pottery Road, The Paper Mill, next Thursday, Friday, Saturday. This upcoming Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the 18th, 19th, and 20th, 9 p.m. is when the show starts. You can get your tickets at the door. They're only $30 each. All right. Let's, uh, let's take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll get to some uh, spine-tingling tales here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Vlad Eisengrim is here from The Paranormal Show. And if you want to learn more about it and uh, upcoming dates, theparanormalshow.net. All right, let's go to the phones and welcome John from New York. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show on AM 740. How are you? Hello, John. Is John there from New York? Going once. Going twice. John in New York. No, we've lost him. All right. Um, what other uh, uh, feats of, uh, of, of paranormal uh, phenomena go on at the, uh, the paranormal show? I mean, I was there. I witnessed it. Uh, as I say, it was quite remarkable. But uh, for those who haven't seen it, what else? You mentioned a seance. Yes, uh, the seance. What else uh, are we going to see? Well, we actually... Uh, Let me just get Dan to get your mic on there. I don't think we've... Uh... Dan, you get Vlad's mic going there? Terrific. All Thank right. you. Uh, no, uh, we, what we do in the show outside of the seance, which is the grand finale to the show, is uh, we attempt things like telekinesis, where I'll pit one side of the audience against the other to actually attempt to move an object with the energy of their minds. And we have two different objects on two different sides of the stage. And because of the size of the audience, we can sometimes get those things not only moving, but flying and sometimes absolutely exploding on stage. It's astounding. I witnessed that. That was remarkable. Uh, now, again, with the, uh, the, 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 the spirits yes. the, um, the, that participate in the show, has anything ever gotten um, out, of, out of hand where, uh, I mean, these spirits, they could be... Uh, what, demonic? You don't know what you're dealing with necessarily. Right. I mean, how do you control the, the, uh, their, their actions well, during the show? Well, one of the important things that I do before the show, before the audience even comes into the theater, is I smudge the theater. 
Now, this will keep pretty well all negative energy out of the theater. This is a very important part of, like, my pre-show getting, you know, ready. And I'll do a half an hour smudge of the whole theater itself from front to back. And uh, then when we finally do the show itself, I'm trying to summon when I'm thinking about the summoning, because I have to actually focus myself, I become like a beacon, a, a magnet. When I start to summon the energy, I attempt to only think of positive energy and sentient energy that could be, like, you know, used in that room that would not harm anybody. So in other words, you're but, going to repel male, uh, malevolent uh, entities yes. and attract only uh, benevolent. And if you remember during the show, we had brought somebody up on stage that became a part of a very important experiment with Edison's machine to talk to the dead. Yes. And at that moment that we made contact, that person was actually touched. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know if I, should, uh, if I should mention that or not because I didn't want to uh, you know, necessarily divulge everything that went on in the show. Right. But that was rather chilling. This, she was visibly shaken. Yes. Uh, she felt someone touch her um, on, the, on the shoulder, on the back. Uh, and there was nobody the, else on stage with her. No. She was alone in the center of the stage with the spotlight on her. There I wish nothing. I had a chance to talk to her after the, uh, after the show mm -hmm. to find out really. Is that, is that common that, that people feel um, the presence of a, of a spirit? They're physically touched? That's why I, I pick a female for that act because they're a lot more in tune with that kind of thing. And so they are prone to uh, actual activity. Um, we, we have found uh, just through experimentation, through years of doing the show and also using the Edison machine, that um, the people that are, you know, most uh, prone to the actual uh, manifestations, the actual being moved or touched by the spirits are the women in the audience. All right. Back to the phones we go. And again to New York. And this time it's Diane. Welcome, Diane. Good morning. Good morning. Do you have a spine-tingling tale you'd like to share? Yes, actually I do. And I have to, like, step away because I'm hearing it backfeed. I need you to turn the radio off, you. yes. I'm listening to you on the radio. All right, thank you. I have to actually tell you about a tale that uh, about I was listening to all the military people with the power going down and, you know, shutting everything down and... Yes, at the nuclear uh, the nuclear sites. Haywire, right. As sort of speaks. Um, I'm driving down the road, and I'm in upstate New York. In New York, where there's a lot of lights. I mean, upstate New York, there's apple, you know, trees, orchards, and cornfields. So when you come across a light, I mean, we're driving at dark, and... All of a sudden, we see there's, like, one light, and it's flickering, and it happens all the time. You know, they flicker, they go out. But when we drove past it, and there was a car coming uh, towards us, um, the radio, everything just shut down. It was like, woof. Just like that like scene in... was out. Just like that scene Lights in Close Encounters. Out. And it wasn't just my car. It wasn't stalling or anything. It just... No power, no radio, no nothing. The other car, no lights, no nothing. And just, like, hold tight, white-knuckled onto the wheel. And just... You, so your car, vase, your car stalled I mean, like, in the I'm middle of the road? I'm holding my breath. Like, I'm going through it. It's like, it was like, 
What was that? How long was I your mean, car out, knocked out of commission? came back on. How long was your car uh, stalled? It never stalled. It was like we were going through it, and everything, just the lights, the power. Right, right. And, you know, we were just passing a car, and their lights went out, and, and she's like, oh, my God, what happened? I mean, she's ducking down the passenger seat, and I was like, hmm. And how long ago did this <laughs> happen? Knuckling the wheel. That was about, like, I'd have to say about 10 years ago. How has it affected your life, Diane? I, I don't know. How, you know what? I know. It's, it's freaky because the lights, I mean, just the two cars passing. I mean, we're... I, I say from I'm from New York, and everybody pictures there's like streets and there's millions of cars. No, it's very rural up there in upstate We're New in the country. Yeah. We're yeah. Minnewaska, Mount Mohonk. We're up here. So you're convinced it was a, a you're you're convinced this was a close encounter with a UFO. I think there, yes. There's no reason to suck out power for lights and have the flickering and the radio and. Everything just fades down. No, that sounds like a uh, like a textbook. I mean, you uh, can feel it. That sounds like a textbook uh, encounter to me. I, I I mentioned that 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 memorable scene with Richard Dreyfus in the pickup truck at the railway crossing uh, as the UFO descended, and uh, of course uh, played uh, haywire with his radio and his uh, interior lights, etc. That to me, uh, Diane, I would have to concur would it would be a textbook uh, UFO. A close encounter. All right, do we have time for one more? Or do we have to break, Dan? Okay, let's go to uh, Peter in Rexdale. Good morning. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Peter. Yeah, hello. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I'd like to tell you a little experience I had. I played Ouija quite a while. I played Ouija probably for 50 years. Wow. And the way that I started, I had a an aunt who was playing Ouija, and she gave me her powers, she told me. And this was I, was, I was about 15. So we started playing Ouija around the kitchen table. We used uh, a crystal stemware glass, and we would wash it so it was really clean and turn it upside down and cut out letters and numbers and put them around the glass in a circle and everyone would put a finger on the glass, and me being the medium, I would ask for the spirit to come and join us. And we would have, uh, say, uh, it would go to Y for yes and N for no. So sometimes the glass would literally move across the table and touch the Y, so we would respond and say, oh, hello, spirit, you know, welcome, and hope we can have some fun and whatnot. We'd like to ask you a question. So each person would get a turn to ask a question. But some of the most interesting things were when there was someone there who was very doubtful of the game. Now, one incident, we had a boarder from my grandmother's. He was a Frenchman. And he wouldn't sit in the kitchen when we were playing, but he was in the living room. And we said, Pierre, ask it a question. So he said, okay, uh, this is after years and years of, you know, in trying to get him to join us. So he asked it, he said, what's my name? 
So we figure, okay, he's a Frenchman. He's got probably three names, and we know his, one, his first name and his last name. But here Luigi starts going around the board, and it gives us five names. Say, Pierre, come on in the kitchen. We got your name. And he looks down on the paper, because you write it down every time it goes to a letter, so you can keep track of it, right? i got about 30 seconds here, uh, uh, Anyway, uh, it got his five names right, and he didn't even know the order they came in. He had to look at his license or something to see if, he, if we got them right. My word. Listen, I, uh, uh, Ouija boards, I've always cautioned people, uh, um, well, I'll be perfectly blunt, don't fool around with those things. Now, now Vlad Eisengrim... They're portals. Th those are portals. I mean, yeah. do you utilize a Ouija board ever in your paranormal show? No. No. We don't use Ouija boards in the show. I mean, did they? but they go back to the Victorian era, do they not? Oh, absolutely. They've been around for at least 200 years. Would you say they're dangerous? Very. Because you don't know what you're opening. When you, when, when you start to talk to that thing, it, it's sometimes not, you know, a benevolent uh, thing that you're speaking with. It can be just something that's using you to get more and more energy and then come into your realm. How do you get rid of it once it's in? It the depends. spirit. You can't always smudge them. See, that's the thing. It's like sometimes it takes a lot more than that. You may have to exercise it out of your home. I've heard uh, some, some very frightening stories about people trying to get rid of Ouija boards. I had a, a couple of girls approach me once while we were doing a broadcast at the CNE. And uh, they told me they had a Ouija board. They used to dabble in it, and they tried to get rid of the Ouija board. And they would throw it out, and then the next day it was right back in the closet. And they would literally walk down the street behind a shopping mall where there was a dumpster, throw it in there. The next day it was back in the closet, and finally someone told them to burn it. I took mine out to the forest, like around 200 kilometers away from my home. And I chopped it up into little bits and burnt it in a campfire. When I got home from vacation, it was in the basement. No. Yeah. Holy smokes. Well, if that isn't uh, a sufficient warning, then I don't know what to tell you. Don't fool around with Ouija boards. I can't believe they sell these things in toy stores. Yeah, they aren't a toy. No. Parker Brothers should be ashamed. All right. Uh, Vlad Eisengrim, thank you. And uh, once again, The Paranormal Show, uh, next Thursday, Friday, Friday, and Saturday. That's the... 18th, 19th, and 20th of March, 67 Pottery Road here in Toronto, Todd Morden Mills. That's the paper mill, the old paper mill. The paper mill theater. And doors open at 8, shows at 9 o'clock. Yes. Not to be missed. It's, uh, it's a remarkable show. And uh, Vlad Eisengrim is a uh, remarkable uh, performer, talent, with some very scary and special gifts. And uh, thanks for bringing in the spirit hand. It's an interesting pleasure. artifact. Good to see you again, Vlad. All right, thanks to uh, Dan Ellison for technical production. Don't forget, next week on the show, the 9-11 whistleblowers starting at 11 o'clock. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.